Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. This is the fifth lecture of the Nationalism versus Globalism course, Kojev versus Strauss on philosophy and the universal homogenous state. We will consider the introduction to Strauss's book on tyranny, which is a commentary on Xenophon's dialogue, The Hiero. We will then take a very close look at Kojev's response to Strauss's commentary, and in the next lecture, we will look at Strauss's restatement of his position. Leo Strauss wrote on tyranny, an exquisitely careful and illuminating commentary on Xenophon's dialogue called the Hiero. Strauss suggests that this dialogue represents the best point of contact between classical philosophy and modern philosophy, insofar as it can be fruitfully compared to Machiavelli's great work, The Prince, which Strauss elsewhere claims is the beginning of distinctively and self-consciously modern thought. In Xenophon's Hiero, the wise poet Simonides has a conversation with a tyrant named Hiero. They discuss whether or not living the life of a tyrant is superior to living a private life. The tyrant Hiero, strangely, to many ears at least, insists that his life as a tyrant is miserable. In light of his own harsh condemnation of his own way of life, the poet Simonides advises him on how he might become a more beneficent tyrant and, indeed, a more happy tyrant. At bottom, Strauss suggests that the most fundamental question raised by the dialogue is, what is the best way of life? And more specifically, which life is superior, that of the philosopher, the seeker of wisdom, or the life of the ruler or man of action? You might ask, what has Xenophon's short work to do with a course on nationalism and globalism? Strauss argues that the thought of the past has been largely misunderstood. Thus, in order to see if modernity is decisively superior to the thought of the past, one has to understand the thinkers of the past exactly as they understood themselves. For one cannot refute what one has not understood. The commentary of On Tyranny is designed to assist the reader in recovering Xenophon's thought exactly as he understood it. On the other hand, Kojev argues that with Hegel's help, we can understand the thinkers of the past better than they understood themselves. Diametrically opposed political teachings emerge from these insights, uh, political teachings that have a lot to do with the difference between nationalism and globalism. We'll start then with a few thoughts on Strauss's purpose in writing his commentary, and then we'll take a close look at Kojev's critical response. Then, in the next lecture, we'll take up Strauss's incredible restatement, which contains, in a nutshell, the core of Strauss's most essential insights on philosophy and politics. Okay, so why did Leo Strauss write the book on tyranny? Strauss introduces his book with a quotation from the Englishman Macaulay, who says that, quote, from the day which the emancipation of our literature was accomplished, the purification of our literature began. The restraint imposed on writers by the general feeling of readers has been constantly becoming more and more strict. The freest press in Europe is also the most prudish, end quote. Why would Strauss begin on tyranny in this way with this particular quotation? Well, when the modern reader hears the word tyrant, they're likely to imagine someone like Hiro from Xenophon's dialogue or someone like Saddam Hussein or something like that. In other words, 
They tend to imagine an individual who selfishly rules on their own behalf or for their own good at the expense of their people. What Strauss indicates with his quotation is that tyranny exists in guises or forms that are very difficult to identify. Indeed, the liberal forms of government, which purport to be the freest, come with unanticipated restraints of their own. Restraints, restraints which can thus be placed on their captives much more tightly, precisely because they are not seen as restraints. Strauss then goes on to describe the character and purpose of Socratic rhetoric that is employed like, by writers like Plato and Xenophon. It is, quote, designed to lead potential philosophers to philosophy, both by training them and by liberating them from the charms which obstruct the philosophic effort, as well as to prevent the access to philosophy of those who are not fit for it. Socratic rhetoric is emphatically just, Strauss says. In other words, it gives each person, both the philosopher and the non-philosopher, what is fitting. To continue Strauss's own words, quote, Socratic rhetoric is animated by the spirit of social responsibility. It is based on the premise that there is a disproportion between the intransigent quest for truth and the requirements of society, or that not all truths are always harmless. For starters, then, we could, say that Socratic <clears throat> we could say that Socratic rhetoric is elitist, which is to say, it presumes that nature has been extremely unequal in its distribution of human capacity with respect to whether or not one is able to live the best human life, which is to say, the philosophic life. That is, no amount of education or after-school programs will transform a non-philosopher into a philosopher. The non-philosopher's <clears throat> non mind is ineluctably attracted to the charms which obstruct the philosophic effort. Plato's dialogues are filled with human beings who, for one reason or another, are not able to hang on to the insights that would otherwise liberate their mind. They remain confused or seduced by false opinions that ultimately flatter them by presupposing or, assume, or assuming that human life has more significance than it in fact does. We might find ourselves reminded of Nietzsche's distinction from beyond good and evil that we talked about in the last lecture, of two different kinds of minds. One mind wished for safety and comforting self-delusions. The other was honest and aware of a cruelty that inheres in honesty insofar as it requires us to painfully rip away comforting distortions that allow most people to get along with their lives. However this may be, Strauss goes on to make the startling claim that, quote, society will always try to tyrannize thought. How can we make sense of this? All political communities presuppose that certain things are true. For example, when the United States was a better country, citizens share the understanding that men are created equal. Now, in the United States, we are told that all human beings will be made equal. In Iran, the state exists to submit to Allah. In ancient Athens, one could not openly promote atheism or corrupt the young. Which is to say, all communities have an understanding of what it means to be a good citizen. They use various methods at their disposal to keep their citizens persuaded that this understanding is true 
and they punish overtly or quietly those who fail to live up to the standards of a good citizen. Is it going too far, though, to call this tyranny of thought? Well, if Plato is right to say that all political communities are in the cave, then it would be the case that these communities are trying to insist that their partial understanding of the truth is more complete than it in fact is, and they punish people for questioning the completeness of those opinions. Strauss's purpose in writing on tyranny is revealed most clearly in the final paragraph of his introduction, when he wishes for readers who, properly trained in their youth, or youth, will not need cumbersome introductions like the one Strauss has here written. In other words, Strauss's book is for the young, and insofar as Strauss seeks to impress upon them a view of philosophy which is diametrically opposed to the view held by the majority of modern people, that decisive progress has been made over the thought of the past. Strauss is attempting to corrupt the young. He wants to liberate them from the general trends of their time. He attempts to do so under the guise of the scholar. For to be direct or forthright about his intention would invite blame. Those who try to liberate youth from the dominant trends of one's time will necessarily appear as a criminal in the eyes of those who are under the spell of those trends. If we consider the conversational setting of the high road, we see that a wise poet speaks with a tyrant. Strauss notes that Simonides, the poet, cannot speak candidly or frankly, for the tyrant could destroy him. The tyrant also fears the wise man, and since the tyrant is unwise, he does not know what the wise man actually wants or what schemes he is capable of. Thus, the tyrant cannot speak with frankness to the wise man. We can see that Strauss, too, is in a similar conversational setting. He addresses contemporary political scientists, who are the so-called experts um, and are mouthpieces of the correct opinions of the American regime. Strauss protects himself by being a mere commentator on Xenophon's thought. He also makes use of a more formal scholarly apparatus in this book than in most of his others, or especially compared to his late books. We can then take the step to see that a liberal tyranny is much more difficult to confront than a tyranny that is run by one man. If only we could be so lucky as to worry only about the whims of one man. There is much, much more to say about Strauss's commentary on Xenophon's dialogue. But even these introductory thoughts put us in a good position to encounter Kozhev's thought and how radically different it is than Strauss's. We turn now to Alexander Kozhev's critical response to Strauss's commentary. The Russian-born thinker and man of action and devotee of the German philosopher Hegel, Alexander Kozhev, wrote a critical response to Strauss's commentary that argued for the necessity and desirability of nothing less than a universal and homogeneous classless state. In other words, he argued for a world state or for global governance. And Kozhev did not just argue for such things. He lived in France for much of his life, and after offering seminars on Hegel for many years to very important people, he helped to implement the Marshall Plan. He was also involved in promoting the European Economic Community, which is now known as the European Union. 
Uh, you could say that he wanted to unite Europe in a way that Nietzsche did not want to unite Europe, or rather for very different reasons than Nietzsche hoped for a pan-European community. Kozhev was also a central participant in the negotiations leading to the establishment of the <clears throat> excuse me of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, which is now known as the World Trade Organization. And he took a keen interest in encouraging the development of third world countries. In other words, Kozhev helped establish and set in motion institutions that globalize the world and which point the way towards the dissolution of peoples and ways of life before the synthesizing and homogenizing acid of contemporary liberalism. Kozhev's essay is broken up into five parts. I've included the breakdown on the Substack page. At first, Kozhev complains that Simonides is a mere idealist or utopian intellectual who criticizes the tyrant Hiero from an impossibly high standpoint. Kozhev moves from here to say that in modernity, all of Simonides' advice has been actualized. Here is a quotation from <clears throat> uh, Kozhev's essay. He says, It may even be that what was utopian in Xenophon's time could be actualized at a later time, precisely because the time needed to conclude the current business I spoke about has elapsed, and that the current business had to be concluded before the measures needed to actualize the ideal advocated by Simonides could be taken. And if we go back a few lines, Kozhev says this, Indeed, what is said in those chapters, <clears throat> first of all, the tyrant should distribute all kinds of prizes, especially honorific ones, in order to establish Stakhanovite emulations in his state in the fields of agriculture, industry, and commerce. Next, instead of maintaining a mercenary corps of bodyguards, the tyrant should organize a state police, which will always be needed, and a permanent armed force would serve as the nucleus of the army of Mo. <clears throat> would serve the nucleus of the army mobilized in case of war. Besides, the tyrant should not disarm his subjects, but introduce compulsory military service and resort to general mobilization if necessary. Finally, he should spend a part of his personal fortune for the common good and construct public buildings rather than palaces. Generally speaking, the tyrant should gain his subjects' affection by making them happier and considering the fatherland his estate, the citizens his comrades. In this way, Kozhev argues that the modern situation is of a decisively superior character to that of the past. It is also decisively different than the past. Thus, the past has very little to teach us. The common sense advice that Simonides gives to Hiero has already been actualized in modernity. Kozhev articulates a very important Hegelian term called recognition. In my opinion, I think that this is one of his strongest arguments, though I don't think that he is ultimately correct about this being what moves the philosopher. I only mean to say that in my own experience, it is more difficult than I would wish to disentangle my motivations from the desire for recognition. This is something that Kozhev says moves all human beings, but especially moves the philosopher and the tyrant. Kozhev, Kozhev suggests that the tyrant is driven by a desire for recognition, and his other concerns are subordinated to it. This is a modern update on the wish to be honored. 
Uh, he insists that recognition is a more precise term given to us by Hegel. To receive recognition is to be seen through the eyes of others as you would wish to be seen. The hope is that the way you are, in your own eyes especially, is also the way you are understood by others. A problem that inevitably inheres in the idea of recognition is that self-knowledge is more difficult to attain than many, re than many realize. Thus, someone could become angry because others don't recognize their goodness at an activity, but they might not possess the self-awareness required to understand that they might not be good at that activity and thus don't deserve recognition for what they have done. Kojev supposes that the core human motivation is the desire to be recognized or to be honored. Returning to the example of the tyrant, Kojev suggests that the, that, the, the, <clears throat> that the tyrant isn't really worried about being just. Rather, he's worried that by being unjust, he will forfeit the recognition of his authority. By Kojev's account, Hiro can't be happy because his authority is not recognized by his subjects. If it was recognized, they would spontaneously carry out his orders because they think the orders are worthy of being carried out. Because Hiro lacks the recognition of his authority that he craves, he uses force and induces fear, which is much less satisfying. The desire for recognition of the political man is by definition limitless. The head of state can only be satisfied if his state encompasses the whole of mankind. In order to receive more genuine or authentic recognition, a head of state or tyrant would or ought to enfranchise his slaves, emancipate the women, and help everyone reach as high of an economic level as is possible. In this way, all of the people he rules would be as free to offer the highest level of recognition. Everyone flatters the tyrant, or you can imagine in our time also uh, a CEO. Well, this might be pleasant at first to receive such forced recognition or forced flattery, one wishes for those who praise him to be in a position to really mean it. To speak vulgarly, the prostitute who says nice things to you pales qualitatively before the free, beautiful woman who says that she loves you. The head of state or tyrant who has tried to make all classes as free as possible wishes for a universal state. Such a state makes possible the greatest quantity of recognition. The universal and homogeneous state would be best for receiving the most recognition possible. Because if there are no political or social differences, then everyone is equally free and able to make a decision of who to recognize. If everyone approaches the question from the same vantage point, they aren't constrained by necessity to disagree. Kojev looks forward to a future in which everyone automatically agrees. And... You today can see the frustration on the faces of modern liberals about the current thing when others dissent or don't agree. Just imagine Jen Psaki's face when she uh, has to take on difficult questions during a press conference. Um, at any rate, we could say this. Kojev's hopes animate the souls of many human beings today, which is part of why his thought is so worth considering to understand why people think what they think today. Kojev wonders if the philosopher, the seeker of wisdom, 
has any advantages over the uninitiated when it comes to offering the ruler advice. A philosopher, according to Kochev, is better than others at the art of discussion. He sees the inadequacies of arguments better. This allows him to free himself of prejudices to a greater extent than others. Notice the er. The philosopher is bet er at discussion. He is freed from prejudice to a greater extent than others. It is very important that Kojev emphasizes that the philosopher's superiority to others is only by degree or can almost be quantitatively measured. There is not, as Strauss claims, a qualitative chasm between the few and the many. Kojev continues this line of reasoning. The philosopher is more open to reality than others, but he is therefore not totally, <clears throat> totally open to understanding the whole. He is not fully liberated from the charms that obstruct the philosophic effort, as Strauss had put it. Kojev moves then from the Hegelian term of recognition to that of the concrete. The philosopher, by his account, is more open to the concrete, which is to say not stuck in a realm of abstractions. The concrete is the real. Kojev gives an example in a footnote to help clarify what he means. He says that to say the word tree or to talk about a tree is general or is a retreat into abstractions. To say the word tree isolates the tree apart from the concrete reality which sustains it. That is, the earth, air, water, and sun that allow it to exist are abstracted from when you say the word tree. The concrete tries to take in the totality of those things which allow the particulars to be sustained. It's very hard in that way, then, I guess you could say, to talk about the concrete. Um, it's a great challenge, then. Kojev continues describing the philosopher, saying that the philosopher sees further. By now, you can hear and easily recognize the er. The philosopher only sees better, better by degree. For Strauss, much rests on the philosopher's qualitative natural superiority. The premise of esoteric writing, which Strauss is so famous for, or as he described it earlier, Socratic rhetoric, is that some are ready to see and accept hard truths, and some are quite simply not. This is a premise that Kojev does not recognize. However this may be, Kojev insists that contrary to the expectations of many, the philosopher is likely to be more a more capable ruler than the average ruler. But Kojev asks the follow-up question. Does the philosopher want to rule? He introduces themes that he will follow up upon later. Because of temporality and finitude, the philosopher will choose to dedicate his life to the quest for wisdom. It takes up all of one's time to be a good philosopher in the strict sense, just as it takes up all of the ruler's time to be a good ruler. There's a limited amount of time, we have a limited capacity, and we will die. Therefore, we have to make a choice to decide what to do. And on this basis, Kojev thinks that you have to choose either to be a philosopher or to be a ruler. You're not going to be able to be good at both of these things. Okay, so after this partial praise of the philosopher, Kojev then launches into an important attack on classical philosophy. 
he describes an Epicurean image of philosophy that asserts that the philosopher should be totally isolated. The philosopher should be outside of the world, and he retires into himself. Kojev thinks that this image illicitly presupposes the capital B being is essentially immutable or unchanging and eternally identical with itself, and that it is completely revealed for all of eternity. Kojev sees this as the core thing that Strauss presupposes but does not prove in order to insist that Xenophon could be wiser than modern philosophers. In other words, one's access to being or to truth in Strauss's account is not, according to Kojev, is not obscured by the place or time in which the philosopher is situated. This is a claim we will return to when we examine Strauss's restatement or response to Kojev's essay. Does Kojev actually understand Strauss as he understands himself? This is crucial. Kojev calls the position that he attributes to Strauss theistic. That is to say that it involves some kind of belief in God or some kind of divine will. And Kojev opposes it with an atheistic Hegelianism in which being or truth is temporal, which is to say always in motion and in a state of becoming. Thus, by Kojev's account, a philosopher cannot isolate himself in a philosophic garden like the Epicureans, but of necessity must participate in history, which is where being reveals itself. The Epicurean isolated philosopher who believes that truth is unchanging and always available fails to consider the problem of what Kojev calls subjective certainty. This is another key term to take in along with recognition and the concrete, which we've just talked about. The problem of subjective certainty, as Kojev articulates it, is that a human or subject assumes that they know the truth whenever they are sure and certain of having it, or when they think that they have a clear and distinct idea. They don't have the ability to verify on their own that they are right. There is no external standard by which to measure if they are right. The isolated philosopher has to grant that the necessary and sufficient criterion of truth consists in the mere feeling of evidence. Kojev sees this as a massive problem. There are conflicting accounts given by individuals who feel completely certain that they are right. How can we adjudicate between two opposed arguments? if the standard is subjective certainty, or rather, the feeling that one is correct. Which is not to mention, as Kojev goes on to emphasize, one can go mad, one can become crazy. There are people who are insane, who believe that they are completely correct about the way the world is. In order to guard against madness, even the so-called Epicurean philosopher has to leave his garden. He hopes that discussion with friends will provide safeguards against misunderstanding. A cloister of philosopher friends often fosters and perpetuates prejudices, according to Kojev. Kojev says that Strauss... Oh, let's hang on for just a second. In all of this, Kojev thinks that Strauss, by making this uh, difference between the few and the many, has an aristocratic prejudice and is thus not fully philosophic. Uh, 
So to return to the so-called Epicurean philosophic garden, Kojev believes that those friends who quickly, or rather who join the garden, quickly conform to the doctrines expounded by the previous members of the garden. Thus, the philosopher needs to, rather than take on a small cloister of friends who will just perpetuate prejudices, they must live in the wide world or in the street, so to speak. Kojev then moves to the difference between Hiero and Simonides. He says that Hiero wants to be loved by everyone, Simonides admired by a few. And so in this way, Kojev sides with Hiero. Not that one needs to be loved by everyone, but rather that Hiero might be more honest in accepting that he needs to have his authority recognized by everyone, whereas Simonides, like Strauss, has an aristocratic prejudice. So Kojev goes on to elaborate more on his idea of recognition. He points out that when others agree with our ideas, or at least take them seriously, we see that we are not mad. But this does not, on Kojev's account, thereby move us into the realm of truth. All we know is that we're not crazy. We don't know that we've arrived at the truth about the way things are. So there is a... Or rather, we could say, at bottom, according to Kojev, there is no difference between the statesman and the philosopher. They both wish for recognition, and they also wish to genuinely deserve it. The only difference between them is that the tyrant wants the recognition of everybody, whereas the philosopher only wishes for the recognition of a few. Now, to go back to one of Kojev's earlier points, which she now re-elaborates, we could say this. A man is only satisfied if he is recognized by those who are worthy of giving him recognition. Hence, why men must be lifted out of a servile status. We don't want to be recognized by slaves. We want to be recognized by men who are as good as we are. And a slave is forced to recognize us. We, as Kojev suggests, would rather be recognized by people who are free. And so Kojev turns to Socrates, and he says, when Socrates speaks in public, or when any philosopher writes, they seek recognition. That is what they hope for. They may, they may want other things besides, but these public acts have to be designed to gain recognition. Whatever cannot be verified by history, social interaction, is necessarily relegated to the realm of opinion in Kojev's view. So gaining recognition in conversation is not enough. Now Kojev makes another move. Uh, after his attack on the philosopher, he suddenly praises the man of action, although at the end of the essay he will return to praising the philosopher. But now he comes to the man of action. And Kojev claims that the man of action is potentially less driven by recognition than the philosopher who writes. For the man of action has goals he can succeed at in an obvious way, in ways that can be objectively verified. The man of action says, I will do this, and he can know if he did that, um, whether or not anybody admits that he did or not. The philosopher, on the, other hand, on the other hand, cannot know if his book is good or not unless it gains enough recognition by others. Kojev now returns to his earlier claim that the philosopher is well-suited to rule if he would wish to. He says that while the philosopher might be the most competent to rule, his finitude and limited time forces him to devote himself to philosophy all the time. At most, then, he can provide advice to the tyrant. 
or statesman. The direct and immediate effect of their advice seems to be nil. Kojev says that if a philosopher were to become a statesman, he would need to become a tyrant so that he could change things as fast as possible without any legal interference, so that he could shape the world in accordance with his vision. He will have little political patience because he wants to get back to philosophy as soon as possible. I find this slightly tendentious in as much as Kojev had earlier suggested that the philosopher is at least more clear-sighted than most, and now Kojev suggests that if a philosopher were to come into the role of the ruler, he would have no patience, as if the philosopher wouldn't somehow realize that by moving from the realm of thought to the realm of action, he would need to be more hurried. This is, I guess, a small quibble. However this may be, Kojev thinks that it is a tragic problem that the philosopher, who, as he argued earlier, was most well-equipped to rule, does not have the time or the wish to rule over things. Now, Kojev turns back from action and to uh, the realm of thought. He says that discussion has failed to transform the seeker of wisdom into a wise man. The philosopher, the lover of wisdom, the seeker of wisdom, is not in possession of wisdom. He wants it. He's better at thinking than others, but he doesn't have it. And so, Kojev points out something that many people point out, that we are still fumbling around with the same questions after thousands of years. And he says it is because we do not, or rather, it is because discussion does not admit of a sufficient criterion of truth. We don't know for sure when we're right about things. We only have a feeling that we are right about things. And this is why in the year 2022, or in 1955, or in 2000 BC, or in 399 BC, it doesn't matter. The questions are not settled. Philosophy cannot make progress, and the questions always seem to be open. Kojev sees this as a big problem. He says, we must then turn to Hegel's objective method of historical verification. In Kojev's attack on classical modes of thinking, or on Strauss's maybe method of thinking, he turns to a crucial piece of evidence that Strauss also turns to, though he interprets it in a very different way. Um, as Kojev points out, to refute one is not necessarily to convince somebody. So somebody can make an argument, they can have their argument shown to be completely incorrect, and yet, in that same day, in the same moment, they can still believe in their hearts that their argument is correct. Now, this is no doubt true. This happens all the time. As I mentioned earlier, the Platonic dialogues show interlocutor after interlocutor being refuted, but somehow they remain convinced that they are still correct in what they say. They say, ah, it's on the tip of my tongue, or they call Socrates a sorcerer, things along those lines. Now, we could draw two conclusions, or two very different conclusions from this fact. Now, let's take Strauss's interpretation of the fact that people who are refuted, who are still convinced in the truth of their position. Strauss says this. Uh, the conclusion that Strauss draws is that there are the few, and there are the many, by nature. In other words, <clears throat> the philosophic type of human is rare, exceedingly rare. 
and there is a chasm between him and the more common type of man. We could call this an elitist interpretation. Some have an inborn capacity to understand the truth in a way that others cannot. But Kojev does not draw this conclusion from the exact same fact that Strauss looks at. That is to say that many who are refuted are not convinced. Instead, Kojev claims that the historical plane of active social life allows truth to emerge and for contradictions to be resolved. To try to say this a little bit more clearly, history will reach, reach its final stage in and through the universal and homogenous state. To put this in my own words, the existence of many separate nations with different ways of life implies a world in which contradictions remain and in which one nation may try to negate another. By Kojev's account, neither of these nations can be sure that they are correct. Only through the movement of history can we see which nation's ideas are true, and they are more true because they are recognized by more human beings. By this account, liberalism is more true than communism, fascism, or more ancient ways of life, because more individuals are able to recognize it as correct. So, Whereas Strauss took up an elitist position with respect to truth, Kojev takes up a radically egalitarian account of truth. Thus, a core point of dispute between Kojev and Strauss is whether or not there are some who have a higher inborn receptivity to the truth. In Kojev's view, history solves problems that the individuals are unable to. That is, a philosopher as an individual tries to resolve problems, can't understand everything, and then he dies. And another person is not fully able to take up their project because they don't understand everything that their teacher understood, or something like that. So another way, then, to put the key issue between Kojev and Strauss is, that, uh, is to say that Kojev thinks that the entire world, through history, will come to be without contradiction. Um, with the truth, capital T truth, recognized by all in a universal and homogenous world state. Whereas for Strauss, it is only the individual, the philosopher, who might rid his soul of contradictions and see the world clearly. You can see in a way how high Kojev's hopes are. He thinks that everyone in the world will be able to understand, at least in a, a very important way, how things stand. Whereas Strauss has much, much soberer and lower hopes, he thinks perhaps only the philosopher will come to understand the way that things are, and that it will never be the case that everybody will. Uh, we'll talk more about that when we discuss Strauss's restatement in the next lecture. So, um, in Kojev's view, history solves the problem of finitude of one man, uh, as we talked before. So, over time, history discloses to everybody the way that things are, which ideas are more correct. It's not just, uh, or rather, Kojev thinks that one man cannot understand the truth. It's only through history that things are revealed to us as they are. Um, now, Kojev says, at first glance, and now he turns back to the contest between the philosopher and the tyrant, and he says, at first glance, one is tempted to say that the philosopher, the philosophers have had no effect on political life, or that rulers never take them seriously. 
But now Kojev takes a step back and suggests that if we look more closely, this is not the case. Alexander the Great was a student of Aristotle. Even if Alexander didn't understand Aristotle's ethics or politics in a nuanced way, he would have absorbed something about universality or that man can be understood generally like a platonic form, that men everywhere have something in common, especially with respect to logos, the Greek word uh, for reason or argument, and that logos or the word. And logos is essentially common to all human beings. So according to Kojev, Alexander doesn't understand everything Aristotle says, but he absorbs something about some sort of universal characteristic of man. Uh, and this prepared Alexander to understand empire in a totally new way, as no one had understood it before him, or at least no statesman had. As a universal state in which different peoples, conqueror and conquered, could merge. In other words, Alexander imagined civilization. That is, something that is universal in one, just as Logos itself is universal in one. Kojev also points out that there have been religious attempts to do the same kind of thing that philosophy as a secular activity had done. Now, Kojev admits that religion is a much more, or most religions, as he understands them, are more egalitarian, more about those who exist being equal before God, that they have a more egalitarian mode than uh, philosophy does. In the long term, though, he thinks that there is a synthesis between pagan philosophy and universal Christian religion, and that in some way, liberalism as a universal and homogenous state ultimately is the beautiful or allegedly beautiful and good synthesis between these two things. Modern philosophy transforms Christianity and secularizes it which makes, again, the universal and homogenous state a real political goal of people. So hopefully you can see the way that Kojev provides powerful arguments that undergird the common opinions that many have today. I've already suggested ways that one might push back against Kojev's arguments, but in the next lecture, we will see Strauss resoundingly provide an alternative to Kojev's position. Okay, well, uh, I don't have anything else to say, so I hope that you have a wonderful day, and I look forward to hearing any of your thoughts in response to this. Uh, MCC out.